Okay, it's time now for our Philippians 1-6 testimony. I'm going to ask David Law, if he would, to come forward. David, thank you for being willing to do this. This is a part in our service where we uh, allow somebody in the church to, to speak about how Jesus is at work in their life. And, uh, and it's also a time for you to, to, to get to know our people a little bit better. And uh, today we have David Law coming, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled for you to be able to do this, David. Uh, before we get going, though, I want to remind you of this verse that we use, Philippians 1.6. Uh, it says that I am confident of this very thing, that the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a great verse. Paul is, in t- Paul is telling the church there, uh, that they're a work in progress, that if God has started something in you, he's working in you. You think of other passages where, where the Bible says that we are the clay and he's the potter, has his hands on us, working in us, that we would be um, molded into the image of Christ, right? And, and so this verse, Philippians 1.6, is, is saying that what God started, he will finish. He'll bring it to completion. And so we need to be reminded here that we uh, don't take ourselves too seriously that we need God's grace and we need to be forgiven of our sins and we are not as, as awesome as we might think we are. We're not as holy as we might think we are, but we are loved by God, forgiven of our sins, and now being built up in, in his image. And that's what we want to really uh, communicate through these testimonies. So David, thank you for being willing. Thanks for uh, coming up here. Let me ask you first, how did you come to know Jesus? I was fortunate enough to be brought up in church as a kid all the way up through Sunday school. and uh, You're good. Okay. And, uh, my parents raised me in, in church, and um, at the age of... 12, going in my 13th year on Easter Sunday, I accepted Jesus into my heart. Mm. And I grew up and, and I became a later adult. And the day after I graduated high school, I got married. And I've been married, thank God, ever since then. And my, <laughs> my wife still loves me. And that's the biggest blessing in my life, I think, that she's, yep. you know, she's still with me. Amen. And, uh, Amen. That's good, good. So you were, you were a young boy, 12, 13 years old, uh, when, when Christ came into your life, and you recall that, and we're thankful for that church and, and for your parents and having you there and the hearing of the preaching and the sharing of the message and all of that, okay? Uh, well, since then, okay, uh, you've been a Christian now for a while. When you look back on your life and you think about all that God's done and how he's been working your life and the ups and downs that, that life brings, what do you look at and say, here's where God grew me, or here's a time where I know God was working? That's the hardest question of all, Josh. Mm. Um, since then, I've, I got out of going to church. Mm. You know, I raised my family, and it was a failed where I was raised in, and I did not raise them in it. Mm. Um, we had them at daycare at church facilities, but really fell out. And I always felt that I was missing it. I was missing it. Mm. And, uh, on top of that, you know, I've, I've sinned in my life from great sin and tried to carry that burden. And uh, uh, it's just keep it simple. It's, it's, uh, it's a burden you can't carry on your own. Mm. And I've, I've asked for mercy for his blood and forgive me. Mm. And uh, it, I'm still dealing with a lot yeah. of that. And, mm. uh, but I just praise God that he, he is forgiving God. Yeah. Wow. And David, thank you. Thank you for that honesty. I think if we're uh, all here and, and honest, we would say that when we look back on our lives, there have been patches or seasons or maybe even 
big long periods like David is referring to where he's fallen out or fallen away but lived with some conviction and yet come back to trusting in the Lord. Thank you for that. Thanks for being honest enough to, to admit that. And we praise God that he's kept you, right? And that's yes. what this whole verse is about, that this testimony of the Philippians 1.6 is that what God started, he'll bring it to completion. And sometimes we, we've got some seasons that are kind of blurry, but he will finish what he started. And we, we thank God that we see that in your, your heart and your life. Okay, well, uh, last question. How, how's God working in you right now? How's God growing you now? Well, he, he's blessed that Jonathan started coming here about eight years ago. Mm. And uh, I said, well, you know, I, I feel the draw back to church, and I'm blessed to be here and um, studying the Word again. And um, um, I just thank you all for accepting me into the church and mm. being blessed that, that I'm here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. God has brought you back into church and given you a church family. We, we praise God for that. Church, would you join me as I pray? Pray for David. Father in heaven, thank you for for David Law and for how you're at work in his heart and his life. God, thank you for his humility and his honesty. Lord, I thank you that we've got promises in the scripture that you forgive us of our sins. And I thank you, God, that we can know that in your, in your love that we are a work in progress, that that is something that we can admit, and that what you started, you will finish. God, I pray that you would continue doing that. Lord, I pray that David would be a good church to us, be a good, healthy, active part of our church, uh, building us up, and that we would be that to him. God, I do thank you for his good wife, who he says is his biggest blessing, that she loves him. God, I thank you for his family. And I pray, God, your blessing upon David now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, David. Thank you, man. Good job. Good job. Okay, Mark chapter 8. We have finished chapter 7. I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 8 now, moving right along. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. You can grab the, the pew Bible there, the black one that's in the, in the pew. Uh, it's page 927. We're going to move in a <clears throat> new chapter. Jesus moving right along, still though, in this brief period with the Gentiles, and uh, I think you're going to like today. I, I'm especially excited about Jesus getting to the heart of the matter. I'm going to cover more than I normally do. Uh, I could have stopped, but I'm not uh, at a few different places, but I'm not going to. I'm going to cover 1 through 21 today in, in Mark chapter 8, and this passage here starts off with Jesus feeding the 4,000. It was just a few weeks ago when he fed the 5,000. This is him feeding the 4,000. After that, some issues are raised and some questions are raised. And when we look at this whole passage here today, you're going to be left with understanding some truths about Jesus and yet maybe not understanding Jesus. And this is really common today. Every one of you knows some about Jesus. You know some of the good old stuff. You know about church. You know about God. You know what some things are about. You know some sins. But when you talk about getting it, getting at the heart of God, that's a different thing. And our passage today is going to bring that out. I want to challenge you here today that you really would listen. I've been praying that, that God would give us 
spiritual eyes and ears to really connect with the passage today. Read with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 8, 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them down before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Our passage begins with a nice story about Jesus and his great power and being able to feed hungry people when there's nothing there to feed them with. Jesus does the miraculous and uses his divine powers. Jesus is God, and he takes uh, the the little bit of food that they have and multiplies it out of nothing, just multiplies it to feed a whole multitude of people. Now, since you've been coming here regularly, you know that even in my Bible, it's just the, the page before, in Mark chapter 6, at verse 30, we have the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Some of you here today knew that Jesus had fed the 5,000, but you had never heard that he fed the 5,000 and fed the 4,000. Jesus did both. There are two different scenes, two completely different scenes, where Jesus feeds a multitude, and both times he feeds them with loaves and fish. Now, the feeding of the 5,000, okay, 
was in a Jewish context, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels tell us about it. That's why everybody knows about that one, because whether you're reading in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, whatever book you're reading in, 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 the, in the Gospels, they all tell us the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in a Jewish context, okay? This one's different, and Matthew and Mark are the only ones that cover this. Luke and John don't have this story, just Matthew and Mark. It's in a Gentile setting, and it's a feeding of the 4,000, so it's different. And the numbers are different, the, the beginning numbers are different, the finishing numbers are different. It's two completely different stories. Some people have tried hard to try to say, well, it must be the same story. He never really did that twice. But no, it is two completely different settings. Jesus had done this twice, and according to, to John, maybe he did this stuff all the time. We just don't have recording of it. But we do have record of him doing this on two different occasions. One time with 5,000 in a Jewish context, another time with 4,000 in a Gentile context context, and that's what we have here today. It's an awesome story. I want us to read it and get it and look at it, and then I want to move on to those other passages that we read as well, and I want to do it by covering three points. First is the compassion of God. The second is the provision of God, and the third is the warning of God. I hope you're seeing already that this is a good passage for us to study, and I hope that you're already seeing that this is a good God that we can know, a good Father in heaven. We have provision from God, we have compassion from God, and we have warning for, from God. Compassion, provision, and warning. Let's begin with the compassion. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, In those days when again a great ca- crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat, and he called his disciples to him, and here's what he said. Now, This is pretty common that crowds are all around Jesus. It seems like every week I'm reminding you all that there are crowds gathered. He's God. He's been doing all sorts of miracles. He's such a compelling figure in that he's humble and lowly, not anything special, but his treatment of people, his concern for people, his ability to do the miraculous, his not fearing anything, whether it be demons or whether it be poverty or whether it be uh, sexual sins or whatever it is, Jesus can just... Just go with it. And always meets it with love and meets it with truth. It's fantastic. So Jesus has drawn people to himself. He has healed so many people and he teaches like nobody's ever taught. And so there are always crowds around him and that's how this begins. But here they're hungry. It's a hungry crowd. And as you know, uh, when you get hungry, you're not yourself. Things can be, uh, you can become grumpy. You need something to eat. And Jesus calls the disciples to him. In verse 2 he says this. I have compassion on the crowd. I don't know if you've ever been around a crowd before. We're coming up on Black Friday, and there will be crowds there, and I've never had compassion on them. I've been mad. I've been mad at them for being in it. I've been more mad at me for being mad at them because I'm in it with them but I've never had compassion on them. Jesus here, with a crowd of 4,000 minimum, hungry people, has compassion on them. And I know we're just into the first two verses of it, but I want to I stop there and, and remind you all yet again that God is a compassionate God. I don't know who represents God most to you. I don't know who informs you most about what God is like. 
but I pray over and against everything in your life. Every person that talks about God, every book that you read about God, every TV show that influences you about God, every news channel that influences you about God. I pray that every influence in your life today would take a back seat to God's Word Himself and that what you believe about God would come from God's Word. He is a compassionate God. Jesus here with the crowd doesn't say, hey, it's about to get crazy up in here. Let's get out of here. Hey, they're all hungry. Before long, they're going to start riding. We better, we better dip out. Jesus says, calls his guys together and says, I have compassion on them. It's not saying that Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus is saying, I have compassion on them. He's a compassionate God. He cares. But I want to see what, what's he caring about? What, what's his concern? And on first thought, okay, you might say that these people have spiritual need. He's concerned about their hearts, right? And that's, that's where you would think it's going. But no, not here right now. Not, 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 not in this passage. Verse 2 says, I have compassion on the crowd. Why, Jesus? Because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. Now I want to stop for a second. I want to ask you, to be convicted here today that you would have compassion on people over their physical needs. For far too long, religious people and Christian people have, are able to say they've got compassion on people's spiritual needs with being totally indifferent or uninvolved about anybody's physical needs. Jesus does not allow us to be this type of person, okay? We're not allowed to sit home and watch the news and just gripe about the way people act. He doesn't want us to. To take a cliche that I learned in sports a long time ago, don't talk about it, be about it. And this goes with Jesus following Christianity as well. Jesus has compassion on these people simply because they're hungry. He's not worried about why they're not eating. He's not saying, well, y'all need to go out and get a job. Which I've heard so many times through your social media pages and other social media pages here recently. Can we stop saying that type of stuff? Can we ask God to give us a compassionate heart like them? Unless you really, really know, unless you're all up in it, let's bite our tongues, hold our mouths, have compassion on people. We don't know why these people aren't eating. The, pa the passage does tell us that it was 4,000 men, so you could conclude that there were women and children there too, so it was probably more like, 8, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people, I don't know. But it doesn't tell us why they're hungry while they're not eating. Is it a bunch of bad moms who didn't pack the lunches that day? What are you doing, mom? You knew we were going to be out here three days. Why don't we have a packed lunch with us? He's not saying that. Is it a bunch of irresponsible people because they spent all their money at the first gas station they stopped at on buying bubble gum for the kids, and so now they don't have money to buy dinner? I don't know. Have they been laying out of work hoping that the, that the government's going to give it for them? I don't know. We don't know why they're hungry, but they're hungry, and he has compassion on them. And where are the people that align themselves with Jesus who feel the same way? We've been doing Dare to Care here for like a year, and every single Wednesday, they are lined up out there. We tell them we don't open until 4, but they'll be here at 2 o'clock lined up. And in all honesty... Some of y'all ain't had one bit of compassion for them yet. Some of y'all don't care. 
In all honesty, and nobody said it to me because you, 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 you're not bold enough to, but some of y'all are thinking we probably shouldn't do it. It's hard to believe that God would have compassion on you and you would not have compassion on people. He's burdened for them. J.C. Ryle says he has compassion even on those who are not his people. What a God. Listen, he says he, says he has compassion on faithless people. Jesus has compassion on graceless people. Jesus has compassion on the people who follow not him, but this world. Listen, he feels tenderly for them, though they know it not. He died for them, though they care little for what he did on the cross. He has a special love, beyond doubt, for his own believing people. But listen, he has also a general love of compassion, even for unthankful, evil people, Jesus does. And if the church wants to ever reflect him in the world, they must do the same. His message for us is to love our enemies, not fight back. His message for us is to wash their feet, not complain. His message message for us is to walk by faith, not by sight. In a very real sense, Jesus would say, it doesn't matter what you're seeing. It doesn't matter what you're thinking about what you're seeing. It doesn't matter. You need to set your eyes upon Jesus and go and walk in the way he's asked you to walk. And that is with a compassionate heart. Now, I do want to show you, if you'll go back to the chapter 6 passage, I do want to show you his compassion there, which is entirely different. Look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Verse 34, And he went ashore, and he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Why, Jesus? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It is absolutely true that our God is a compassionate God toward people because of their dark Lost, hardened hearts. In chapter 6, his compassion upon those people that he was about to feed was not so much because their bellies were growling. It was because their hearts were, were deep in sin and they did not know how to get out of it. They were living their lives, walking around in the world, trying to do good and trying to do right and really just trying to give back and love and do the best they can, which is what every human being longs for. And that is not near enough to get you right with God or to heaven. And Jesus said, they are like sheep walking around without a shepherd. There is no uh, God that reigns over them. There is no God that leads them. They, they don't have eyes toward their king. They're not following anyone. They're not ruled by truth. They're, they're, they're not bowed down to to their leader. Jesus knew that they were like sheep without a shepherd and, and he had compassion upon them because they were lost. They did not understand life. And the Bible teaches us through and through in the passage that we just read, uh, Jake opened up with it in Isaiah 45. It says the exact same thing. It says, Turn to me and be saved for all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 
To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And he, it, it goes on and on talking about how God is the only salvation. God is the only way for people to find hope. And in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is having compassion on them because they don't know that. And we need to understand that with God, there is a concern for humanity. With God, there is a love for his people. God made us. He's the maker of the world. Made every single one of you. And he cares about you. And he loves you truly. But you look at chapter 6, compassion for you, and it's because you need a Savior. You need God. If your life is not completely bowed down and surrendered to God, if you have not bowed your heart to Him and cried out saying, God, help me. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, fix me. Oh, God, rearrange my life. God, change my passions. God, change the things I long for. God, make me somebody that loves you. If you've not done that, then you are still in need of God. And while that is your great need, God also cares for your small needs. If you're hungry this week, God cares about that. You have a passage right here in Mark chapter 8 where he cares about people that are in that position. Have compassion on them because they have not eaten. If you go over a little bit later in our passage, move over to verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign from heaven to test him. And look what it says. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and says, do you not understand? Now, Jesus is out of that Gentile context, and now he's back in here with the Jews. The Pharisees are the leader of the Jews. And we see even his compassionate heart in dealing with them and that they, they do not understand. That deep sigh seems to show us that Jesus is burdened and, and, and concerned of how lost people are. One commentator says, grief over the sins of others is one leading evidence of true grace. The man who is really converted to Christ will always regard the unconverted with pity and concern. In other words, it's very troubling for, for you to identify with Christ and yet not be compassionate toward people. To be a religious person and have your life focused on God is to admit that heaven and hell are a real thing. If there's not going to be a judgment and a, and a, and a destination and a, and a punishment and an, internal, and an eternal life, then, then, then really all of this is a bit too much. But since there is a real judgment from a holy God and there is wrath bearing down on sins that God is holding back and since heaven and hell aren't real places, then it does so matter what is the truth and what is salvation. And if those things are real and you claim to them in your own heart and life, then it would only make sense that you care about other people in that position. If heaven's a real place that you're going to, then by all means, don't you want other people to be there too? And if hell is a real place that you're escaping because God has, in his mercy, forgiven you of your sins, don't you want everybody else to escape that? To not have that sort of compassion is to totally make everything muddy and doesn't make sense, and that's inconsistent, and I don't get it. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 2, I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow before my brothers. He's talking about the Jews. 
Paul says his heart's heavy for those people that are not trusting in Christ. J.C. Ryle says, listen to this, there are few sure marks of an unconverted heart than carelessness and, and indifference about the souls of others. I totally agree. Charles Spurgeon says, if you have no desire for people to be saved, you must not be saved yourself. Heaven and hell are too big, too grand, too real, too polarizing for us to claim it for ourselves and not desire it for others. That does not make sense. We have here in our passage that Jesus cares about people. He is a compassionate God. I want to ask you, do you know that God loves you? Are you sure of it? We had a church member die yesterday. I'm not sure if you know that or not. He sat in the back row right over there, Mr. Jim Tabor. Such a nice guy, funny guy, pleasant guy. I loved greeting him every day. He passed away yesterday. He had a massive stroke on Tuesday morning and passed away yesterday. His wife is now a widow. She's at the funeral home as we speak making arrangements. This week I was with her three different times and I was there last night. And both times that that I was at her house, I had taken somebody with me to, to visit with me and both times, the person that I took was nearly moved to tears just observing how upset she is. Hearing a widow cry saying, I miss him, is not easy to sit through. And we were moved with compassion for her. And as we sat and talked, and as you know, there's not really anything you can say at that time. I don't say, well, it's, it's okay. Did you watch the UK game? You don't, you don't say that there. It's a good conversation to have when death's not before you, but I, I wasn't even thinking about ball games as I sat in her living room last night. And as she talked, you know what she said? I know Christ loved Jim. It almost makes me cry now. I know Christ loved Jim. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Are you sure of it? Is that going to be your comfort, your weight, your, your, your banner when it comes time for you to die? Because the way sin works, listen to me, the way sin works is that you will know in your head that the Bible says God loves me, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. You'll know that, but your guilty conscience and conviction of your sins will make it where you're not sure if he does. That's the way sin works. And so you're not sure if you're right with God. You're not sure if God's compassion is reaching you because of the way sin and guilt and shame and conviction are. And these are real things. So what I'm asking here today is do you have the, 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 the comfort, the strength, the promise that God has compassion on you? Have you heard his love? Have you heard his compassion? And, and have you turned away from your sins and embraced him? 
Have you said, Lord, have mercy on me? I was encouraged to hear David stand here and say that, that, that his final answer was that the Lord has had mercy on him. He's asked God to have mercy on him. He, he stands before his whole church and says, I've messed up and I've strayed away, but now he's brought me back and I'm thanking God that he had mercy on me. Is that you? Has God's compassion reached you? Have you asked him for his mercy? Has he forgiven you of your sins? Are you sure above everything else, not that you love God, but that God loves you? Is God's love what's defining your life? Jesus had compassion on them because they were hungry. And so he begins to to act. The compassion of God leads us into the provision of God. Let's look on at at verse 3. Jesus says, If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. His disciples answered him, "How How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, having given thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set them before the people. And they passed them out to the crowd. The provision of God. The provision of God, folks, is that God can provide for us whatever we need. And it doesn't matter what materials that he has around us. The provision of God is that God is able to provide whatever God desires to provide. And sometimes it falls just in line with what we need, like food for our hungry bellies. And sometimes it falls just in line with what we don't understand what we need, but it is just what we need. And sometimes it's what we want, and sometimes it's not what we want, but it is always God's provision. The verse we read at the beginning was Philippians 1.6. A little bit later in the book of Philippians, God starts getting into, it's awesome, in chapter 4, talking about how life is so hard sometimes. And Paul begins to speak about how he's been hungry, he's been full, he's had money and he's been broke, he's been poor, he's been cold and he's been sheltered. And he starts explaining all that in Philippians 4. And he says this great verse, that whatever I've been through, the sufferings I've been through or the blessings I've been through, I can do all of it through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. And then he reminds the church, and my God, as he has for me, will for you supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in He tells the church, God will supply all of your needs. It's chapter 4, verse 19 in Philippians. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches, his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God is a provider. I don't know if this week you were going through a hard time or you had had a hard day, but but all of a sudden you, you, you came to your senses and you bowed your head, maybe in the car, maybe by your bed. Maybe at the dinner table and you prayed out to God and it was more than just God, thank you for the food. It was God, help me. I need you here. Oh God, hear my prayer. And he provided it. And and sometimes if you're like me, you move so quickly past it that you forget the process that he just provided the very thing I needed. This week I was reading the daily proverb because the proverbs line up with the days of the week. And on the 11th, we'll see, today's the 13th, so on the 11th, which must have been Friday, me and the boys read Proverbs 11 before they went to school on Friday. And there's a passage in there, I think verse maybe 22 or something, that speaks to women. And it teaches women that they need to live with discretion. 
It says a woman without discretion, a beautiful woman without discretion is like a, a gold ring and a pig's nose. The Bible says that. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are if you can't live with discretion. And I started thinking, you know what, we got a lot of single girls in our church, single ladies, and so I, I sent a text message with that verse out to a lot of the single girls in our church. I think maybe like eight or ten of them. And within no time, I mean literally within an hour, five of them had written back saying, I needed to hear that badly. See, the way life goes is we tend to get, listen to me, the way life goes, we tend to get more focused on the things that are not God's priorities. It just, it just happens to us. It happens to me. It happens to you guys. We get focused on things that aren't God's priorities. And we need to come back to the truth that God is providing God. God knows exactly what we need. He knows where I'm at. And he's asking me to tunnel in, to focus in on what God is about and to arrange my life about the things that God is about. He will provide what I need. And here they were hungry, and he provides the food. And we're left seeing God's provision here. And I said this before. The moral of this story is the great Jesus that is God, that is a provider. That's what this passage is about. We are to understand here that God can provide whatever he wants to. He's not wondering if there's enough food that I can make this happen. He's wondering, should I do it or should I not? Because he certainly can do it. You need to know that about your own life. God can do right now in your life whatever he wanted to do. If you needed some more money this week, he could. If you need a break, he could. If you need somebody gone from your life, he could get them out of your life. God could do whatever he wants to do in your life, but you need to understand that he knows exactly what you need to keep you pressing on, holding on to the work of Christ on the cross, trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins, and striving after the glory of God. And so sometimes our desires get out of line and we start asking God to provide things that we want him to provide, but it's not what he needs to provide. And this passage teaches us this. He had compassion on them in chapter 6 because they didn't have a shepherd. And he had compassion on them in chapter 8 because they were hungry. God is a providing God. That's what you need to know. You don't need to get lost in the, 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 the bread and the fish. And here's why I included the next passages. After that, which there's, there's really not all that much to it, except for that Jesus is God and he can provide and he did a miracle. That's it. But it says that after that he left. Look at verse 10. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and they went to this other district. And this district, Dalmanutha, is not uh, well known in Scripture. I believe this is the only place in Scripture. And he goes away and as soon as he gets there, verse 11, so it's him and his disciples, the Pharisees came, began to argue with him. Look, they came to argue. And they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now notice, why are they seeking a sign to test him? I don't know why you're seeking a sign. I don't know why the people around town are seeking a sign. 
But I want you to see that one motive that is there for people who are seeking a sign from God is not a pure motive. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, man, well, if he's true, why doesn't he just do this? Or if, if he would just come into my house and show me that he's real, then I would believe in him. I, I hear those objections all the time. And I want you to see in this passage that not always, and I don't, I don't know people's motives, but sometimes people's motives are not pure. They're asking him for a sign, and it says they were asking him for a sign in an argumentative mode only to test him. They're curious what he could say. They've already made up their mind that they're against him, and they're just trying to find a way to remove him, oppose him, find him wrong, kick him out, and ultimately kill him. And that's when Jesus responds with the deep sigh. And Jesus asked this question. Why does this generation seek a sign? That's a good question. Is your generation seeking a sign? Is the younger generation today seeking a sign? If so, why? What, what are you getting at? What are you trying to figure out? See, that, that's what it means when we say, give me a sign. I want to know something. What, what is it you're trying to know? Are you trying to know if Jesus is good? Well, there's not much questioning that. Are you trying to know that Jesus is God? Well, not much questioning that. Are you trying to know that Jesus is real? Got a big book here that's all about him. And your conscience won't let you get away from wondering if he's real. I think he's real. You see what he means when he's saying a sign? Like, what, what are you actually wanting in asking for a sign? What is it you're desiring, wishing for, hoping? It's almost often an easy way out to say, I don't believe. And until you make me believe, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to change. Maybe you're here today setting away, I don't know what it could be, and you're convicted of it. Maybe your family's sensing it, and you're bothered by it. And you're waiting for some of the biggest, most random, off-the-wall, miraculous sign to come and make you change because you know that random, off-the-wall, miraculous thing isn't coming. And so you can stay your old self. And maybe Jesus is saying, why are you seeking a sign? What's that going to accomplish? Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verse 22. We're looking at the provision of God. They're looking for a sign, and God is not going to give them a sign. John chapter 10, verse 22, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Give us a sign, God. If you really are the Savior, if you really are God, give us a sign. Tell us plainly. How long are you going to make us wait? 
from day one, listen to me, from day one, the very first time Jesus was seen on earth as an adult in the Bible, it has been said, he is God the Savior. It's been the message from all along. John the Baptist was screaming that out as a weirdo before Jesus was even on the scene. And when Jesus walked up, he said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah was talking about this man. It's never been in question who Jesus is, why he came. It is crystal clear. God has provided above all things a Savior for our sins. If you're here today and you have sinned against God, you are convicted, you are broken, you are hurting, you are lost, I've got good news. God has provided every single thing that you need to be right with God and to go to heaven. He provided his son, he killed him on the cross, and in Jesus dying, you don't have to, and in Jesus living, you get to, and in Jesus having a kingdom that is not of this world, that reigns forever in heaven, you can live forever in it. You can be God's child in God's kingdom forever ever, never done anything good to earn it, all because of what Jesus has done. That is provision if there's ever been provision. And go back to now John chapter 10, verse 24. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The union, the unity, the closeness, the oneness between God the Father and God the Son is one and the same. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To know the Son is to know the Father. To know that Jesus died for sins is to know that God has saved you you from your sins what provision and in the gospel of mark you can turn back there now the compassion of jesus which leads him to have provision for their needs is waking us up that god not only provides for our physical needs but he also provides for our spiritual needs but it is not enough for you to be here today and say Well, I know of a compassionate, providing God. Because the Bible wants us to hear the message and respond. In our new members class, if somebody wants to join the church, we encourage them to go to this class. It meets four times. And every time we meet, in all four meetings, I start the class by going through what we call the four-point gospel. The first point that the whole Bible is about is that God is a holy God. The second point is that people are sinful people, and there's a big problem between God and people. All people have sinned against the holy God, and that's a problem. The third point is that God provides an answer to that problem in sending Jesus. God in his love sent Jesus to die on the cross. So we've got a holy God, sinful people, and a dying on the cross for their sins, Jesus. But there's another point. It is not enough for you to know one, two, and three. It's not enough for you to feel strongly about one, two, and three. The fourth point is that people must respond to that. 
They must respond to the holy God, respond to their sins against the holy God, and respond to Jesus being the answer to their sin problem before a holy God. They must respond to God by belief, by faith, by repentance, saying, God, forgive me of my sins. And if, 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 if somebody will not come to God and say, God, forgive me, God, save me, God, have mercy on me, then they will not be saved. They will not be right with God. They will face the judgment of God. They will face the wrath of God. They will be separated from God. We must be a responding people to God's compassion and God's provision. And if not, God has a great warning for us. And that's my third and final point. The warning of God. Look back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign is coming. You've already got your sign, he says. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side, which raises a great point. Is the only reason he went over there so they could argue with him so he could say you're not getting a sign, and then he left? Because verse 10 says he went to the other side. Verse 11 says he got out, they came arguing. Verse 12 says he got back in the boat and went back. Don't know. Verse 14. So now he's back in the boat with the disciples. Now listen to this conversation. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them. Jesus is clever. He's about to start talking about things that sound like bread talk in the midst of all of this bread stuff. And he's not talking about bread. Jesus cautioned them. You ever cautioned somebody? Liliana sleeps at night, our little baby, in these like um, onesie, sleeper, footsie things, this big, huge outfit that's all one piece. And the bottom is like whatever the clothes are made out of, like the soft stuff. And it happens like every night. She goes running through the house on the carpet and hits the hardwood floor without grip on there. And it's every time. You can see it coming. Here she goes, five, four, three, two, She's running on the carpet, and she hits the hardwood floor and wipes out. And it's usually like one leg back, one leg forward, head on the floor, like a wipe out. And Val always says, if you knew she was going to do that, why'd you let her? To which the dad always says, well, she's got to learn to not do that. And so I've gotten to where I'll say, careful, 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 careful. And she knows. So she'll be going fast, and she'll get right to the hardwood floor, and she Warning her, right? Warning her that if you keep going in that direction toward that, something bad's going to happen. Caution. And Jesus gets back in the boat with them. He's just fed the 4,000. He's just interacted with the argumentative religious people looking for a sign. He just says, guys, let me give you a word of caution. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what's he mean by the leaven? Now, if you've ever cooked before, you know the leaven is the yeast, this little, little tiny ingredient that's got to go into the rest of the ingredients, and it's what makes the bread happen. It's what causes it to rise. It's the, it's the key part that you've got to have. Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So they didn't understand. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, look at this, five straight questions. 
This sounds like a parent talking to their kid when the, parent, when the kids don't get it. It's just question after question after question. What are you doing? What were you thinking? What's going on in your mind? Do you not know better? Haven't I taught you better than that? Just over and over again. Look, look at this. Verse 17, Jesus, aware of them not getting it, said, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hard? And having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the bread, the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets? Twelve. What about the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets? Seven. It, it sounds crazy to think that Jesus has now done two different miracles for thousands and thousands of people, all because they didn't have bread, and he provided bread. And here are the disciples in the boat without bread, and they say, oh, man, we don't have any bread to eat. Sounds ridiculous. But Jesus goes beyond the, duh, guys, wake up. I can provide you bread anytime I want to. He goes more to the heart of the matter, and he says, let me give you a word of caution, guys. Beware of the Pharisees and the ways of Herod and the leaven. Well, what's he talking about? Well, verse 21, he says, do you not yet understand? For time's sake, you don't have to turn there. But in the parallel passage we read in Matthew chapter 16, it's telling the same story. Listen to what he says. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The leaven of them is what they teach about God. In other words, guys, we have a warning from God. Be careful what you believe. Be careful what you're trusting. Be careful what you're thinking gets you to heaven. Be careful on thinking where salvation is. Be careful what comforts you in death. Be careful. Be careful. Y'all, God is a warning God. Certainly, he's a compassionate God, and he is a providing God. But in, in his provision of giving his son, you must respond to that and trust in him. And he warns, if you will not commit yourself to Christ, be repentant and forgiven of your sins, then you will not be saved. And the Pharisees were wanting to test him. They were arguing with him. They were a religious people that wanted, they wanted God in their religion and their good works without a Savior. And he has great warning. I want to give you some warnings. Beware of what you believe. Beware of what you understand is true about God. If you don't know what the Bible says, then how do you know what is true about God? Beware of being in that position. Beware of the teachers and preachers that you listen to. Beware of what you think your kids are understanding. If you do not know the truth about God and you are not teaching it to, the, to your children, then you know for sure that they do not know the truth about God. Beware of thinking that your relationship of, with God is based off of what you do. This was their problem. Remember the past couple weeks he's been arguing with them over their hearts? Remember that passage where they were arguing over, do you have to wash hands? A real argument from the religious people about washing hands. Beware of thinking things like that. Beware of thinking that coming to church today has now made you right with God. Beware of thinking that any sin that you do is okay. No, it's wrong and sinful. Beware of neglecting your heart and being more concerned about the outer than the inner. Beware of thinking that everyone is safe in God's love. Beware of thinking that the provision has made everybody safe when it has not. Beware of justifying your actions. If you're living in sin here today and you're wrong and you know it, then would you respond to Christ? 
Beware of asking God for a sign when he has already given you one. Beware of thinking you are a religious good person if there is not an all-out allegiance to Jesus. God has compassion on us through Jesus. God has provided for us with Jesus. And God has warned us that we are wrong without Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and providing a Savior for us and for warning us. Oh God, may we hear your warning and proceed with caution. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.